0: Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with peer and leave us a review. My guest today is Mahesh Rajasekharan, CEO of Clio, a software platform for supply chain system integrations. A few months ago, I asked a few friends which sales-focused CEO they admired most, and they all unanimously said Mahesh. With Mahesh at the helm, Clio has grown from a single-digit ARR business in 2012 to nearly 100 million in ARR today with even greater ambitions for the future. He has built some of the most robust and high-performing sales and product teams I've seen and is a value-adding investor and advisor to many other CEOs. Mahesh and I talk about the story of Clio and how they drive customer value, pivot points along the growth journey, building best-in-class sales and product orgs, growth while remaining profitable, private equity ownership, and so much more. Please enjoy this fantastic conversation with Mahesh Rajasekaran. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberley-risk.com or visit their website at oberly riskcom And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Do I need directors and officers insurance? Like why might my board want me to have it?
1: This is, another, this is another really big question we get. Clients say, you know, do we really need to buy D&O insurance? Many times a target company didn't have DNO insurance before, and it's something that you'll want to consider buying when you buy the business. I would say what we see typically is if you're a traditional searcher and you have a board, formal board, usually those board members are going to want to have directors and officers insurance. As part of their agreement to joining the board, they're going to require the coverage. So it's something you want to get. It really protects the personal assets of the board members, officers at the company in case you're sued or they're sued for wrongdoing at the company that could lead to like a financial loss for another shareholder or the value of the business. So I would say if you're a traditional searcher and you have a board or, or a, you're an independent sponsor and you have a board or a private equity firm, and you have a board, you're going to want to have DNO insurance. If you're buying a business and you're more on the self-funded side and you're, you're not going to have a board and you're going to own most of the company anyways. I would say the 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 in practicality, the need for DNO is less, but we still see, see clients buy it. I, I'd say about fifty percent of our self funded uh, our self funded searchers end up buying the, the DNO insurance, and that that's really because DNO not, not only covers a, a lawsuit potentially from another shareholder, but it could cover a lawsuit from a a competitor or a lender or or anyone alleging mismanagement of the business. So that's that's generally the themes we see for, for when people buy DNO. Great. Thank you, August. To learn more
0: about Oberly risk strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood and Strong and Ravix Group, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think a good place to start would be a kind of overview and outline of Clio and then maybe as a primary like what the business looked like when you purchased it versus what cleo looks like today and some of the change in between
2: yeah sure sure alex great to be on your podcast let me give you a little background first a small team of investors and i bought Clio in 2012 rockford based software company it was focused on mid market data movement technology with 37 employees it was called managed file transfer that is the name of the software we had. By all accounts, Cleo was a true diamond in the rough. It was a licensed maintenance model, four million in maintenance ARR, but thousands of loyal customers. basically, customers loved the product, great customer satisfaction. It was considered excellent value for money and had a reputation of being very easy to do business with, all positive things. But what we saw in it was a high-performing asset, which we could move to the cloud, take, take it up upmarket into the enterprise and professionalize as a business. And one of the things we found out early on, speaking to customers, was that there was so much more Clio could do, in the sense that the larger B2B integration space was very much broken, in the sense that a lot of the customers that we had sold the data movement technology had complex partner networks, they had B2B business processes, they ordered a cash and procured to pay that required far more sophisticated orchestration and scalability than was being offered by traditional integration players. So this gave us a tremendous view of what we can do with the business. We realized how fortunate we were to find something which is truly a once in a lifetime opportunity to establish a cloud integration platform at the perfect time when companies everywhere were undergoing digital transformation, so we saw retail supply chains were giving way to omni-channel, where you're having a retail supply chain, but you're competing with Amazon by selling through the through e-commerce front end, working with web front ends or web commerce platforms like eBay or working with Amazon. So we just thought that there was a tremendous opportunity for us to build a platform to support e-commerce and omni-channel fulfillment. So that essentially gave us the the opportunity and the idea to take an on-premise mid-market business and build a true cloud integration software company to support digital transformation. So if you look at the the transition point, it's 11 years for me as CEO of Clio from 2012 to, to now. I would say there are three major pivot points Point number one, the first pivot was, a month or two into the business, we realized that we had the opportunity to take Clio from a mid-market business into an enterprise business. So we still stayed in data movement, but we built an enterprise caliber platform for enterprise data movement and, and landed some very, very marquee deals. And then from 2016 to 2020 approximately, we built a cloud integration platform but also then from data movement to data transformation and integration. So we ground up, built a cloud integration platform. And and along the way, we built a strong go-to-market engine as well, which can sell large deals, which can create leads. And now from 2020, 2021, when we had this significant recapitalization with HIG Capital, now we're really building a network, a Clio network, on top of the platform. So it makes it so much easier for com- companies in supply chain to very quickly connect, onboard, and and run their order to cash and procure to pay businesses on Clio. So that's sort of the three major pivot points. Like right? you know, go enterprise first, build a cloud integration platform, and then build a network on top of the platform. And along the way, we had to build a go-to-market engine, which is going to support large deals, build brand and build the lead gen you know, ahead of the, the sales engine. So we have enough leads to to position and sell.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk all about the the go-to-market team and sales team you, you built. But in that first pivot, seeing that you could kind of create your own category and go to the cloud, what told you that that was an opportunity? What were you seeing?
2: Well, what we basically saw was that there was a lot of, evolution of companies in the cloud integration space, and all of them focused on application integration. Right? We saw companies like MuleSoft, companies like Boomi, which are all getting into a lot of attention. Uh, they were called Integration Platform as a Service. And at that point, we realized the bigger problem was business-to-business integration, because more and more as companies were becoming sort of uh, vertical businesses with vertical integration, Across uh, horizontal uh, sort of going offshore and and trying to build the supply chains moving more and more to to asia the b two b integration became far more important on the supply chain side but also on the the digital transformation of e-commerce. We saw Amazon becoming very important companies like Walmart Target and others were trying to become like Amazon with their own dot com and as part of that, we also saw direct-to-consumer businesses essentially having Shopify and Magento front-ends and taking business from customers. But at the same time, fulfillment became important, right? When Amazon was saying two-day delivery, you know, everyone had to match up to two-day delivery, and then Amazon started to go into same-day delivery. And so now you have logistics companies on fire. The warehouses are now moving into population centers. So we clearly realized in the 2015-16 timeframe that there was a massive need for a company to build a new category called ecosystem integration, which can serve the needs of e-commerce, omni-channel fulfillment, and essentially be a business that can do real-time integration and which, which is very business process centric. The traditional companies were very much infrastructure software, right? They were only focused on endpoints. They were moving bits and bytes. But our focus was we needed a B2B integration company, which was Business process focused, which was in the cloud. It can be real time. It can be dynamic and intelligent. So that gave us the the idea, and we tested out with a lot of customers, and we saw massive interest from a lot of customers. So as we're building the platform, we were also getting deals, and we built the platform through three generations, and we had growth pick up from generation one to generation two. Now we are in the third generation of our platform. So that's how we got the conviction around ecosystem integration by recognizing the need and having customer proof points and adoption to prove this category.
0: Yeah, focusing on driving customer value in all of your product improvements and product evolutions, how did you identify what customers valued and care about? What, what kind of customer outreach and feedback mechanism did you build to understand what the changing needs for your market were?
2: So we have this whole core idea around, you know, internally we name it LAYER, which stands for Land, Adopt, Expand, Renew. And we look at that progression because the nature of business-to-business integration is there are a ton of use cases. So once you solve a business use case, so let's say we're going to help a manufacturer connect with Walmart and Target, right? Then the next use case could be to work with the e-commerce like Amazon or eBay. Then they may have to do their own direct-to-consumer. Then they may have to go and manage their logistics chain for inbound and outbound logistics. Then it gets into Procure-to-Pay. So along the way with customer success, we make sure that every single use case is very quickly adopted. And we also have a proxy for measuring the value we are creating. Our sales methodology is based on quantifying the value proposition, right? And when we do that, we then we go back and deploy the use case and then see using some proxies whether we're delivering the value. And our goal is to make sure we meet and exceed the value proposition, not only in terms of making the projects go live in time, which is important, but also making sure that we have executive dialogue during our EBRs, which is executive business reviews, which we do every three months to make sure that we met and exceeded the customer value proposition in terms of revenue growth, profitability, speed of onboarding of their business partners. And then we will then use those success stories to evangelize the company within other parts of the customer and expand use cases. So the layer model, the land, adopt, expand, renew model, allowed us to have C-level conversations on business metrics, which then tied to the IT use cases we were deploying. So that's how we validated things
0: and it sounds like it's not just a go to market and customer success there's a, a a product organization that is tightly integrated into this whole flywheel of customer feedback new use cases going to market how have you coordinated and focused on a product team a growing product team that's taking on new features and use cases and how do you how do you get them to coordinate with success and sales I, it sounds like it might be through these executive review meetings and um, i i assume a bunch of other different ways too yes
2: the 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 fast answer to this is really twofold right no no company can win without a product because we are at the end of the day we are product companies we are solving a major customer problem which is unmet or undermet, through a solution which is highly differentiated than the next best alternative so it, it really starts with the product at the same time, no company can succeed without developing a way to bring in a lot of customers and keep them stay with you so they'll expand. So it's really two-part. And what we did sort of from a timing perspective, initially, we we went in, we saw great great technology, we we thought we can do some tweaks and, and really started focusing on sales and marketing and driving growth. And but as as we're doing, as I just explained early on we realized that we could do a lot more, a whole lot more. We can build this ecosystem integration category. And for doing that, we needed a a three-pronged approach in the product side. First, we needed to build a platform, an ecosystem integration platform, which was real-time, and it can do dynamic and intelligent integration across two different types of technologies. One is APIs, which stands for Application Program Interface that's the real time so typically when you read about e-commerce people talk a lot about apis and digital transformation that's because it's digital and it's real time there is another technology which has been around and it's where billions and trillions of dollars of revenue transacts each and every day which is edi and electronic data interchange what we did is we bought both technologies in the same platform and no one has done this right so that's a platform level There are thinking was the platform is scalable, it tra- processes billions of transactions, but we need to build a digital network on top of the platform. So I can very quickly connect to customers, could be retailers, could be the you know, e-commerce platforms, could be web market marketplaces, but also connect into the backend, different ERP systems, SAP, Oracle, NetSuite, Microsoft Dynamics. So we can quickly enable digital commerce And then the third level was we needed to build an ecosystem relationship management on top. Because end of the day, you want to find a way to do business easily with your customers so that you can expand revenue, so that you can expand profitability. And so you needed to build an analytics layer, which is proactive in nature. So we went about building the platform through three generations. Took us about four years, 17 or 2021, to build the strongest B2B integration platform in the world. And now we are building the network on top and the ecosystem relationship management layer on top to a point where we are creating, we're really becoming the de facto supply chain execution layer to do efficient supply chain execution for companies in manufacturing, logistics, and distribution, wholesale distribution. So that's what we're doing. But one of the most important things Alex realizes as you're doing it, you need to get a lot of, lot of customers. It's not product first and then sales next, so we're continuously leveraging our customers who wanted to go and do something different because existing B2B integration technologies are broken. So we saw a lot of Fortune 500 companies and others partner with Clio along our journey by being part of advisory board, being part of our different conferences, giving us feedback and really jointly working with us to perfect the ecosystem integration category.
0: Yeah, I would love to dive into that aspect a little bit more of that customer feedback. So not the sales process where they go from prospect to customer, but now that they're a customer, what are some things you've learned about getting feedback from customers and testing features with them and kind of pace of communications? What tips and things have you learned working with existing customers?
2: Most importantly, it's credibility, right? And And you gain credibility by making sure the promise you make in, in sales is very quickly delivered through. And, and so it really starts with, with the, the sales process itself. So we have customer success embedded in the sales process. And we ask sort of a three-part question for our customer value proposition. Question number one is why do something? Question number two is why clear, And question number three is why do something now? And what that means is why do something is everything around a quantifiable value proposition compared to the next best alternative. It could be because of a process change, a product capability, could be changing performance metrics and doing different things with the people, right? It's all four Ps. And we quantify that and we, and we quantify not in absolute terms, but in relative terms compared to the next best alternative. Then the next question we ask is, what is it that we're doing unique or better than others to unlock the incremental value? What are those capabilities, right? And the third question which we actually ask ourselves is, why now? When the customer has, you know, five, ten different priorities any given time, Mm -hmm. why should they do the Clio initiative? Right? Why now and what does it do for them? And then once we close the transaction, our customer success team and our deployment teams, and then sometimes it may not be Clio deploying it, it could be a Clio partner or a system integrator, but our customer success is still Clio teams. So we partner with them to make sure the initial project metrics, which is you know, in terms of uh, on-time delivery, how many customers and how many suppliers they're going to integrate, as well as the business metric. Sometimes we, we may have to get the customer connected to, to Amazon first because it can unlock a lot of revenue for them. So we make sure the customer value proposition is delivered quickly. And then as we start delivering that, we're gonna, we build a lot of fans within the organization. And then our EBRs, which is the executive business review, We try to make sure that it is IT and business. And sometimes we even try to go to other organizations. For example, if you work in order to cash, which is CFO, CIO, head of sales, we try to get the head of procurement, maybe have the head of operations. So now we're then unearthing other opportunities to maybe solve something in on the procure to pay, something to solve in the inbound logistics. So this is how we create credibility and value creation. And we show those metrics, which opens up customers to share more with us as a trusted advisor.
0: So I'd love to dive into your sales organization in more depth, but what did it look like initially? And what what changes did you make to your go-to-market and sales teams in that first year or two of Clio?
2: Yeah, it is really, you know, crawl before you, walk-before-you-run sort of thing. Step one was, basically, I did really two things. Very structured pipeline review, which deals in the pipeline, what stages they are, are they accurate, and had a simple close plan, which is who's doing what in the clear organization, who's doing what in the customer organization, and what are the dates in terms of MMDDYY, and made sure that there was tremendous rigor in executing on a close plan. That's all it is. Pipeline review closed plan that started to accelerate sales. What the company was selling in you know two, three, four quarters, we started to sell in one to two quarters. Right. Then the next step was now we are exhausting the pipeline. Okay, now we needed a, a demand generation organization to be put in place. Right? When we first started, the demand generation organization was all outbound. We had sales development reps who focused on calling customers, right? And then we created a pipeline which the sales team worked on. As part of the evolution, there are two two other things we did. One was bring in a sales methodology. So everybody has the same language. So all the stages in Salesforce, so we can track performance of salespeople and we can perform progression of the sales sales cycle. And then on the marketing side, we started augment outbound with inbound. So we started to create more digital assets so customers started to come into Quio. So we were trying to, you know, expose business challenges customers face, so that they came to our website to find out how to solve the problem. And through that, we got the leads. And over time, we took a very vertical focus. And this is this is an advice I'll give to most CEOs. Even in in horizontal organizations, they're nothing but a series of verticals. So we decided very early on that we're going to be supply chain focused. While B2B integration applies to healthcare, B2B integration applies to financial services, we said we're going to become maniacally focused on supply chain verticals, which is manufacturing, logistics, and wholesale distribution. And even specifically within manufacturing, we started to get into sub-segments and micro-segments, like food and beverage companies, like CPG companies, right? Get into logistics and look at What third party logistics companies care about? What carriers care about? What do the freight brokerages care about? And by doing that, we really started to build vertical knowledge and vertical use cases, which made it easier both from a vertical go to market and selling and demand generation. So this is sort of how we evolved. And now we're evolving more into working with system integrators and bringing on a, an indirect channel business, which can further scale up our direct go-to-market.
0: And how did the, the leadership team for your sales team evolve over time? Were there, we, you talked about pivot points to open our episode, what pivot points in the team composition, like who's leading the sales team, what pivot points did you see as ARR grew over time?
2: So initially I was overseeing sales. And we, we, we had a VP of sales, but I really came in with with a very clear focus on solution selling and large account selling, right? So initially it's about me coming in, looking at all the deals, doing deal reviews, understanding customer value proposition, be able to make sure the methodology was followed. We implemented Salesforce, implemented solution selling methodology. And I used to train our methodology to all the new salespeople. And then, about four years into it as we scaled, right? At that point, we brought on a head of enterprise sales. And I was still running sales as a CEO, but I had, I had a head of mid-market sales and I had a head of enterprise sales. And by 2016, we got to a point where it made sense to get a to a senior VP of sales who managed both mid-market and enterprise. And then we started to grow into Europe and we brought, brought in a VP of sales for Europe. And then by 2019, we took sort of a, Basically, we wanted to break the sales organization into a net new organization and install base organization and further look into it in terms of net new commercial segment, which is a mid market segment and net new enterprise. And similarly, we looked at the install base business as net new commercial install base and enterprise install base. And now as we're evolving, we've not fully done that yet. We are now evolving into a vertical sales team. One thing to know, Alex, is as you become more and more vertical, there could be inefficiencies if you don't scale correctly. Because now a salesperson can only look at manufacturing deals and cannot work on logistics deals. So it's just a timing where there's enough critical mass where you can bring in experts. And one of the things we do to get around the problem is we bring in industry experts or industry black belts in logistics and manufacturing and distribution who are embedded in the sales organization. So we still have a VP of net new enterprise sales, but he has a VP of logistics who can provide guidance and credibility on a large logistics deal versus a manufacturing business where we bring in a VP of manufacturing solutions who brings in the credibility. So it's very, very important to, to make sure that sales organization scales in an efficient manner. And there are different pivot points. So we are at a point where maybe in a year or so, we'll break into true enterprise and commercial VPs of sales for the different industry segments like manufacturing logistics and do the same thing in the the install base as well.
0: You said that it's important to scale a sales team properly. What would a badly scaled sales team look like? And what are some things that you can do to avoid that?
2: Most importantly, I believe in having pipeline built ahead of sales. There's no point in hiring a lot of salespeople when you don't have a good pipeline. So it's very important to build a lead gen organization, which is world-class, right? Having said that, in the lead gen organization, you have SDRs, BDRs, or, or junior, quite frankly. And so we need to make sure there's a very strong alignment between the legion organization and sales organization to make sure the right deals are quickly qualified and acted upon, okay? The second most important thing is, it's really important to hire salespeople who who have the right culture, who fit into the organization. Especially in smaller companies, you need people who are smart, who are very intelligent, who are not depending on the street credit organization. For example, if somebody works for IBM or works for Oracle, they're large organizations and, and they have a lot of street cred. And because in Oracle rap, you get people return your email, pick up your phone call. That doesn't happen in smaller organizations. So we need salespeople who are fearless, who are intelligent, with the right attitude and aptitude, who can quickly learn and who can truly differentiate themselves because of their ability to truly add value for the customer not just report the news. We always use that slogan. It's about not just, you know, reporting the news, but creating the news. It's very easy for a salesperson to say, well, you know, it's not a question of if, but when. But for us, every quarter makes sense. Time kills deals, right? Whether you can close a deal in the fourth quarter of 2023 versus the first quarter of 2024 is huge in terms of growth rate and momentum. So you need salespeople who are very resourceful, who are willing to, to tackle the issues early on, who can bring it uh, bring it to the attention of the company and get everybody else involved to close. So that's so that's where culture becomes important, methodology becomes important. We need salespeople who can follow the methodology so that we know when they are having a problem. For example, some salespeople are very very good in quickly qualifying a deal, and then they struggle to progress through the sales cycle. There are some other people who are very good in you know progressing the cycle, but they may take time to qualify. There are some other people who may get to the finish line, but may not be able to punch it in. So we need to then know how to, the sales leadership becomes extremely important. So it's not just the sales reps. The sales leadership in smaller software companies should be able to step in and close deals while mentoring and and, and coaching the sales team. Because we also have this other dynamic where we have VPs of sales who can get deals done, but the sales reps won't develop with them. What we really need is great frontline sales managers who can step into close transactions all the while coaching and bringing the sales people along. Right. So that, that, that's why I, I mean, it's very, very important to build a sales efficient organization. And, and then the metric we look at is essentially a very, very simple sales efficiency ratio, which is Basically, the new ARR divided by the total spend in sales and marketing. And you want that metric to be closer to one. It doesn't have to be a one, but you want it, want it to approach one. And you need to make sure the pipeline, the ASPs, and you get the ASP, the average selling price based on the value proposition, right? So you're selling based on value. The ASPs and the speed of sales cycles time have to be managed so you have a very predictable sales organization.
0: What have you learned about hiring that profile of salesperson—that person who's hungry, curious, smart, and can move deals through? How do you? What are some effective ways you've found at finding that person and identifying them?
2: Quite frankly, it, it is not easy. I think, as you alluded to it, great salespeople are tough to find because they're doing extremely well, right? And and every intelligent organization is going to do everything to keep them. Right? They're gonna be, you know, gonna get paid more, they're gonna be, they're gonna be celebrated. So we do a couple of things. One, we have built a farm system within Cleo where we look for athlete model and in, in the SDR hires, in the sales development rep hires. So we look at people who have played you know college sports, who, will, who will be at YMCA, people who have done, you know, run summer camps in you know, athletes, with the right attitude and aptitude, and we bring them in. You know, we, we do some sales competency tests, et cetera, aptitude tests. And then we really coach them very rigorously during the SDR process. Our model is very much, a, you know, one to two years, you're going to get promoted into someone within Clio. One path is the sales path, become an account exec. Another path could be to become a customer success manager because some of them love sales. they love working with customers but may not want to take the pressure of a sales quota. And they do phenomenal job as customer success managers. But to your question on AEs, we actually, even when we hire, we have become so good in our internal analytics that there are some people we think they'll be an okay SDR, but will be a great salesperson. We'll know them. We also know people who can be amazing SDRs who could be okay AEs we will still hire them. And so that's a dominant path of the form system. But along the way, We also celebrate sales as a function that as we grow and promote people, our competitors look at what Clio does and then there is this natural excitement for what we do within the sales organization in terms of how quickly we progress people, how quickly they improve their competencies. Then we start attracting people from outside, right? So that's sort of second. And the third thing we do, we talk to a lot of people, right? We constantly have an antenna Uh, What is the sales talent outside? We actually have a calibration of some of our competitors on where people are. And we may or may not have the budget, but we know who's out there. And so that way we have the relationship. We have the network. And if we find somebody great, we find a way to get them into the company as well, even if there is no role, because we know great sales talent is tough to find. And when you get great sales talent, they will absolutely earn the keeps. So, so that's kind of how it's a sort of a three part model, which is a farm system, creating a great sales culture so people want to come and work for you, but also have this broader network of, you know, VPs of sales, directors of sales, inner competitors and adjacent companies that we have respect for and know who they are and find ways to get them.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about talented salespeople, especially in leadership positions, being hard to find and smart companies don't want to let them go. How do you go approach someone like that and convince them to join your perhaps smaller company, maybe much smaller company? How do you convince them to make that, that leap?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really, it gets to the, the core mission, mission, core values of Clio. We are very much focused on building ecosystem integration. And as part of that, we have laid out a value goal which is to create 50 billion in free cash flow to our customers by 2025. They're very explicit about the goal. We have proxy metrics to track the goal. That inspires salespeople. You know, if you look at great salespeople, they are nothing but CEOs of the, of the territories. And most companies don't know how to communicate that. So when they talk to Cleo, we are lo- we are looking at hiring a CEO of a territory, right? It's like a franchise. You you get that. So the so having a customer value proposition, which is exciting and celebrating salespeople. And then the culture of the company, the core values are, it's all about customers, results, innovation, and people. And we talk about how you can be innovative as a salesperson, right? How you can, you know, provide results. And a lot of times, even successful salespeople, there is this whole coin-operated mindset. Most people think salespeople are coin-operated. You know, we just keep on, we celebrate sales excellence. We think, Salespeople are the ones who are communicating our value proposition to the customers and the ones who become customer advisors and the ones who bring in innovation and and inputs from the market, whether it's competition, from customers back into the clear product organization. So I think that sales-oriented culture that we create becomes a great recruiting tool. And then people start talking about how awesome it is for salespeople to come in, be respected, their views are, are heard, not just a coin operator, complex salesperson, but a true sales professional. And we promote them, not only from farm rank to to an account executive. They grow all the way to senior AEs, director of sales, getting to VPs of sales, a very fast, rapid growth within Clio as we scale.
0: And and thinking about your own role as CEO since 2012 to now, what are some notable changes you've observed or changes but also ways you've needed to evolve your role over time what have you noticed over the last couple years
2: very much an evolution from somebody who is completely hands-on and still hands-on but initially it was about you know i was looking at two very important things building a sales organization and and really evolving the the product because most if you look at the the mid-market software company they're very much sort of a single product, it works and you just incrementally grow. I came and fought against incrementalism. We're gonna create a category. So there's a lot of heavy lifting, talking to customers, talking to, to, to developers, really creating the art of the possible and being very involved in everything, right? And then I started to pivot into someone who's gonna focus a lot on hiring, getting world-class talent at every rank of the, in the organization, hiring a world-class CRO, hiring a world-class CFO, Great CMO, great CTO, right? World-class, you know, head of uh, senior VP of product. Just go and aggregate talent. And as part of being an aggregator of talent, I got to know how great looks like, right? And now sort of pivoting into scaling the organization globally into looking into inorganic expansions and doing, you know, targeted growth-oriented M&A, I very much become an allocator of capital. And part of that is very much talent, right? Talent is capital very much a big allocator of talent and capital as part of my evolution over the last 11 years at Clio.
0: How do you evaluate yourself for performance along each of these growth points? It's, it's kind of the rare CEO that can be really effective at 5 million ARR and then 50, 100, 500. How do you evaluate yourself for what what skills you need to be effective today at Clio and then maybe the last next couple of years?
2: Great question. Scaling is, is hard and, and, you know, to be able to get ahead of the curve is even harder. So one of the things I do is I, I constantly challenge myself by, by taking on things which are which are beyond my day-to-day, right? So for example, being on boards of other companies. I'm on the board of Banyan software. We are buying a business a month or more. So it's, it's a different world. It's all about you know, how do you efficiently, you know, manage a, an application platform and be very successful, right? I, I'm on the advisory board of a startup, but that, that's a very different world where you're now trying to create a new category. As you know, Alex, I'm on the conference committee at Stanford and the Search Fund conference committee, where it's all about how do you bring in PE scaling techniques to smaller companies and w- w- what people have done to scaling to, you know, few hundred million to a billion dollar businesses, right? For example, I'm. I'm the last two years, I'm on the the Ernst and Young Midwest Entrepreneurship Entrepreneur of the Year program judge panel. So judging companies which are three, four billion, and really looking at companies which are public, which are scaled up, much larger companies, and really looking at what those CEOs have done in their evolution. Right. So, so I I try to just put myself on the on the cutting edge and really stretch myself and make myself vulnerable. But I also surround myself with very strong folks. You know, for example, the Clio board has two CEOs who have scaled a lot of businesses. We've got a billion-dollar-plus company CFO who chairs the audit committee, a strong deal managing directors, and so having a large board, which is also going to be both support and stretch the thinking. How would a three hundred million-dollar Clio look like? And then going and acquiring talent and the org structure to get there. So I would say it's it's a it, it's it's not easy, but it's also a lot of fun to just imagine and visualize a much larger organization and, and see how you evolve to it. Do you have the talent which can evolve? Do you need to bring in new talent? Would your current processes scale or not? And having a CEO support network who have scaled uh, companies to billion dollars and or more, that gives you a 10x from where you are that you need to get there. It doesn't mean you're going to get there tomorrow, but you know the North Star is much, much bigger. And I have the humility to say that I need to get there, be someone who can listen and get feedback. I also have a customer advisory board, which is very strong. We have multi all dollar business customers. Their CIOs and CTOs give advice. And they're constantly buying from Oracle and buying from IBM and buying from Text and others. And so we get a sense of how those organizations, what are the good things they do that we can absorb? And what are the things that they don't do well that we should we should preserve our culture our core values and never compromise as we scale, and both are important. Preserve your core values, never compromise, but yet look at scaled software businesses and accordingly bring in talent and, and change and evolve your processes as you get as you get along
0: i I know you have ambitions on being not just a growing and dynamic company but remaining profitable while doing so what does profitable growth mean and look like to you?
2: This is a huge learning for me over the years. Uh, it's a great, great question. I've always been a growth guy, i I always felt you grow the business and profitability will follow. And a big learning for me is, and especially not only at Clio, but being on other you know, software companies as, as a board member and advisor, if you don't have profitable growth as a core DNA of the business, you, the the profitability will elude you. And even if you get profitable, you won't be you know, massively profitable. So for me, profitable growth means really focus on the unit economics of the business, right? It's not at the high level, you know, people talk about rule of 40 and I'm growing at 40% and my EBITDA margin is zero. It's not that. What it is is from the unit economics, are you running a world-class software business? Do you have gross margins, you know, mid-70s to 80% for a cloud software business? Do you have sales efficiency, which is 0.7, 0.8, approaching one? Split the sales efficiency into, you know, how does your net new sales efficiency compare to world-class SaaS companies? How does your install base sales efficiency compare to world-class software companies? Are you having gross revenue retention, the GRR metric, gross revenue retention, you know, in the mid-90s? Are you having net revenue retention which is basically the gross retention, plus price increase, plus add-ons, getting closer to 120, right? Those are very, very important. If those met, and then are you growing, you know, in a 20, 30% range? Then you sort of dive back into what you're spending in R&D, and is it creating assets which is gonna scale you on a multi-horizon, or are you spending money which is not giving you results? So to me, it's about really getting the unit economics right, And then if you say, look, I need to spend a few more million on product because I need to build a one-time lift, whether it's a cloud offering or scale up the platform, that's intelligent investment versus people who look at the headline as "Well, we're growing fast and it's okay to not be profitable. So that's a big learning. And in other words, if you make the physics of the software business have the right unit, unit economics in terms of all the metrics I mentioned, then you're really building a highly profitable business. Early on, you might be investing in R&D or you may be investing in building a go-to-market team. But on a two, three horizon, all the metrics are going to go up and to the right. So you'll have a rule of 50, rule of 60 software business, gross margins, high 70s, all the, the retention metrics are fantastic. And most importantly, sales efficiency really starts to pick, pick up. And that's when you just scale for forever, assuming your time is there and you're continuously differentiating against your competition.
0: So it sounds like a unprofitable but growing software business. It sounds like it's a matter of discipline around investing and setting a, a high enough hurdle rate that a given project is going to pay off in, in in a good time frame. Am I hearing that correctly, or is that am I interpreting and understanding that correctly?
2: Yes, I, I think you should. When when somebody is not profitable, they should ask a hard question: why right And if, if it is because look, all my unit economics are great, but I'm building this great product, which is going to create so much ARR, then fine, then you're very clear on it, you've got product investment objectives, you've got a clear roadmap, and you're proving it out as capabilities come up, you should see clear metrics that you're signing up more customers, they're paying you more average selling price, and your win rates improve and your sales cycles shrink because you've got a great product. If those things are not tracking, you should really ask the question, why are you putting money into product, right? Similarly to go-to-market, people will, some, which is much faster by the way, because usually most investments in sales and go-to-market typically yield results in year one. May not be in the same quarter, but in two quarters out, whether you're building a world-class lead generation organization or a sales organization, you will see the results much faster than product. Product might have a one-year lag, usually. So what I'm saying is you need to be very, very precise on where that lack of profitability is is happening. And it has to be investment. And the investment should have leading indicators while you're investing. And you should have the the proof points as the investment is happening. And not just tell your board that you're just building a product and I'll come out in two years and I'll do something magical. No, you're having modules being built along the way. You're selling. The true proof is in getting customers, right? The true proof in what you're doing is in getting customers. That's how you build brand. They inform you to make your product evolve correctly. So staying in this unprofitable realm for too long is, is, is is a misnomer. A lot of people think early on, I'm going to just invest for future growth. And if you don't, if you're not very, very smart and very, very focused on it with clear metrics, investment metrics, profitability becomes elusive. And I've seen this movie play out in many, many, many companies. And my strong advice to a lot of CEOs who are hearing this podcast is really focus on the unit economics and make sure you know what is investment and everything else should be world-class. And the one area of investing could be sales, could be marketing, could be product. Have clear investment metrics that you're meeting along the way.
0: You say you've seen this movie play out several times where software companies have this elusive desire to become profitable and mentioned that at clio you have best-in-class teams and track a ton of different kpis to make sure you're on the right track when you look at a, a company that hasn't achieved those things is there any root cause or common cause or theme that you've identified for for why those companies don't manage to become profitable eventually
2: i, I think the the biggest challenge I see with with a lot of st- you know, smaller companies is they basically don't have a a very clear set of metrics by which they they need to have a clear North Star, what they're going after, and break it down in terms of clear metrics that can be tracked, right, at the department level and the company level. And I think that's where we see a lot of misalignment, where product is working on something and the sales, you know, doesn't know how to position it proactively and get customers, right? You don't have to wait for every single bits and bytes to be built. You you want to get early customers who are going to teach you, right? And so those metrics have to be aligned between what kind of positioning you're doing to get leads, what you're doing during a sales cycle to close the business, and what capabilities you're depending on to deliver, right? And after you delivered, how do you make sure the customer is successful, they're going to stay, and what add-on, add-ons you can give them. It could be more transactions, it could be more use cases, it could be an additional add-on module. I think to me, the the challenge I see with a lot of the smaller companies is they don't have the discipline of having a clear metrics and accountability structure. And one of the things we did early on in Clio was we had this one-page plan. In one page, we really summarized the north star of the business, where want to be, right? Then we had our five-year goals, Three year goals, one year goal and quarterly goals. And we had the name of the executive in initial in the, in the quarterly objectives. And we clearly had, you know, we tracked how, how we performed last quarter and what are the goals for the next quarter? And that just drove tremendous alignment, including finding out something is not working. Right. So that's how you get efficiency. Not only because you're getting things done. Sometimes there are some of the things you try to clear didn't work. And we had the mechanism to find out very quickly, it's not working, fail fast. And then, then you do something else and you pivot away.
0: Do you have an example, top of mind, for a project that didn't work, but tracking, was a, tracking certain metrics you were able to identify that it wasn't going to work eventually? Because I, I could see that if you had a project that maybe wasn't working initially, but you could still have hope that it was eventually going to work. And so you might keep going longer than you yeah. might want to. Um, very good example passion. of a project where you can find out faster.
2: Yeah. So when we acquired Clio, we were in the managed file transfer business. We we're moving lots of files, and we saw the whole file sync and share business was just growing. We saw the Dropbox, the Box, and there you know ton of companies, and it looked like it was so exciting to just share you know share files and sync them. And we had the core technology. Right. We we're moving massive amount of files at scale, highly secure encrypted and we thought we have the core technology and when all these startups are doing file sync and share, why don't we become file sync and share company? And it was very compelling. We were able to take with the board. It it made a lot of sense at that time based on the information all of us saw. Dr. to Gartner, Dr. to Forrester. And once we got in, what we realized was the world was sort of breaking into sort of this low-end business, commercial and prosumer, which Uh, Dropbox just became fast, started to become sort of the one-stop shop. And then Box.com, which is on the enterprise side, became more of an enterprise content play versus file sharing. right? And then we realized as part of the metrics, as the market is changing, our buyer, our whole thesis was our enterprise software buyers buying managed file transfer technology would also do file sharing. And we realized that is not the case. And so but by tracking the pipeline, by tracking the market, and by tracking the persona we're selling to and the messaging for the persona, we realized it's not gonna work. And then what we did was whatever we built, we actually took it into a platform as a capability which is available, but not something we're gonna go after as a, as a big market. And instead we saw the real market for Clear was to truly build this ecosystem integration category, which is not just move the files and move the data, but transform the data, integrate the data, connect the ERP systems, create this end-to-end visibility, and really become business process focused. And so that massively worked, right? So this is just an example of two, three years into Cleo, the file sync and share, the file sharing space looked so exciting. And we, we worked, we played, but we played to win. We had metrics and we looked at market metrics, sales metrics, and product metrics, and we made the right pivot.
0: Uh, Clio has been through a private equity ownership transition to this point and may have others in the future. What have you learned about being a private equity backed CEO versus the early days of Clio?
2: Yeah, and you might have known this, Alex. I, I, I was a Vista CEO at some total systems, doing a lot of the, the Vista playbooks, and then Alpine was one of the early backers and now HIG Capital. If I have to look at what are the key learnings that probably categorize them into sort of three main areas. You know, number one, our reporting is far more rigorous and better, right? We focus on detailed reporting of financial and operational metrics. We have software, we have databases, we track the RRQ. We look at all the KPIs. We look at variances to plan. And so just the the focus of meaningful data and information, which is accurate, gets all of the stakeholders, my management team, their direct reports, the board fully aligned. Okay. The second thing is more data-driven decision-making. It's not just gut feel. You really get into making sure that every key decision is supported by data. And one of the, the next level of doing that is not just look at, data at the the headline level but now start carefully looking for non-obvious trends not just obvious trends for example if the pipeline indicators are all showing growth right let's say the net new pipeline is growing the the install based pipeline is growing but some other metric doesn't show growth for example we look at okay what is the current quarter plus next quarter pipeline compared year over year or to the previous uh, current quarter plus next next quarter if that is kind of a little we really ask the question, what could be going wrong? And it could be just a common cost variability, in which case you understood it and you don't do anything about it. Or there could be some early indicators of weakness or strength that we want to work on, right? And the third, so that's sort of the more data-driven decision-making, really dig deeper and make it permeate at different levels in the organization, not just board and, you know, the CEO and the management team, but next levels in the organization. The third thing is all about talent. And one of the things which is, I would say, contrary to the typical, what people may think about private, private equity, private equity firms truly believe in talent as the only true massive leverage in our business. So we do not shy away from paying whatever it takes to land great talent ahead of the growth curve. So you asked me a very good question about scaling, right? It's not only scaling for the CEO, scaling for the management team. And when you bring in people who operate in much larger businesses, right? Now you, they've seen the patterns. Of course, culture is important. So we hire based on culture as well, but culture and expertise and hiring, you know, ahead of the growth curve allows us to truly scale, right? More than anything else. And then to reward talent and hard work, we have placed much greater focus on management, equity, and center plans. The way we do the annual goal setting, how we do tracking to qu- to quarterly basis, people know that their hard work and, and success is gonna be richly rewarded, both in terms of bonus plans, as well as in terms of the equity uh, enterprise value creation over time. And so basically, you know, we always remind ourselves that what got us here won't take us there. So right now we're imagining a 300 million year earlier, right, at least three X where we are. So we are looking at the future organization, the future leadership talent, the future organizational structure, and all the different processes are thought through. Not everything we'd invest today, but we know higher level how an org chart is gonna look like. Who are the, the key talent we're missing? Some companies we may have to acquire. some products we may have to build, some regions that expand. And that keeps us going. So that, I would say a lot of the things that uh, PE's are taught us around, great focus on, on reporting metrics, data-driven decision-making, and most importantly, scaling and talent.
0: What are you enjoying most about your role today versus five years ago?
2: I would say now it's that the scaling is is fascinates me, right? Because we have got people who are CEOs of the business, so we got some really really strong talent at every level. So now I'm looking at how to go and and absolutely go and disrupt competition. Now now we're truly trying to amp up the business. We have now reached a point where we have proven the category. We got nice validation from analysts. We have got you know, several hundreds of customers, new new customers we've built in the last few years. And so we know we've got the platform, we are really getting the, the ecosystem integration network being fully built, the analytics platform is being built. So now scaling is a lot of fun. we are growing, we are hiring people, we're doing larger deals. And, and one of the exciting things, Alex, is now that we've built this 4,000 plus customer company, and given the nature of ecosystem integration, Existing customers are coming back to buy more, right? So now we've got this real beautiful flywheel kicking in where existing customers are buying more. New customers want to come in. We're able to hire talent. And now we're looking at, you know, interesting business to acquire. Again, part of this organic scaling, but get some inorganic pieces coming in. So it's a lot more fun as you start aggregating more talent and people who can do things. Now it just frees me up to do bigger things and, and scale Clio into a billion dollar software business in terms of revenue.
0: You mentioned M&A a few times. Is m and something that you looked at earlier in Clio's history or did you feel like you needed to build Clio into the organization you wanted that was high performing before you could go and pursue m and more seriously?
2: Yeah, we truly believe in organic growth because if you want to build a category, Right, not just a marketing buzzword. If you really want to create a multi-billion-dollar category, you have to really lay the the rails of of the category. Now, as part of building the rails, you could have some technology that can that can come in versus you you building it. But we take a very very you know hard look at what capabilities we want to get in. And one of the lens we apply, Alex, is, is there's a capability we think we need to have and need to build. And if we find a company which is actually doing it, that's almost always a good thing to to go and acquire if we can do it in an efficient manner, right? But what is what we don't like to do is look at something which is sort of adjacent, looks interesting. It may be available on the cheap and let's just buy them. We'll never do that, right? So, Somebody, to, to build a massive business, you have to focus on your category creation. You need to have the minds. You need to have the right product management, right engineering, right product marketing to do that. And along the way, if there are pieces that can be brought into the platform that somebody else has built, that you wish you had built or you should be building, then we look at acquiring.
0: Yeah, you, you talked early on in our conversation about the power of, Focusing on supply chain versus trying to be the the integrator for all industries, and it, it counterintuitively seems like the focusing on one area of of the world actually allows you to build a bigger company. That feels counterintuitive, but is a is interesting to dive into more.
2: Absolutely, because if you think about it, you know companies scale because you have tremendous focus and because you are now becoming so important for a certain group of customers whose who problems which have been either under met or undersolved because mo- most of us are solving things in a market where the existing status quo is bad It's not green field where nothing exists right but existing technologies and solutions do not work in our case they do not work in a in a world which is d- digitally Transforming in retail supply chain with e-commerce, with marketplaces and direct-to-consumer, which now requires omni-channel fulfillment and reverse logistics, right? Therefore, we have to really focus on, you know, which industry, which sub-industry, sometimes which micro-segment and which geography we're to focus on. And within that, what problem and who is the buyer persona so that we solve their problem that can be quantified. And we have a messaging that resonates with that buyer persona within the segment. And once you get that done, now, depending on the the TAM, you can do a series of verticals to expand the TAM. But it's so important to get a dominant market share. This whole idea, I'm going to get, oh, this is a four million market and all I need is, you know, 1% and I'm going to create a $40 million business. No, it never works. You have to get 30, 40, 50% of a small TAM and then you just you know, get to the next time and next time and execute a series of verticals, which is all we do within Clio.
0: In closing, what advice would you offer software CEOs of younger companies in growing and scaling their businesses?
2: My, my number one advice is always begin with an end in mind, right? And really approach your work with, a, with tremendous focus, a sense of urgency and prioritize execution over strategy. Most CEOs, when they take over the job, they either have a, some kind of a private placement memorandum or a SIM, right? A confidential information memorandum or a three to five year plan that they work with the board. That's where they come on board. And a lot of younger CEOs sort of then immediately jump into the 90 day, 100 day plan, which is important, right? You have a 100 day plan. However, your three to five year plan is sacrosanct. A lot of work went into it. So make sure you can execute that, right? So do not throw it away, break it down into five-year goals, three-year goals, one-year goals, quarterly goals. So that's my, sort of my number one thing. Have a clear North Star. Approach a job with a tremendous sense of focus and urgency. And execution is key. A lot of people think it's strategy. When things don't work, oh, we got the strategy wrong. The odds are, existing organization, existing people can do a whole lot more than what a lot of CEOs think, especially newer CEOs. Oh, I need to make a change. This is not working, I'm gonna, yes. We should absolutely go and get great talent. We should absolutely redo the organization. But there is maniacal power if you bring in tremendous sense of focus and execution. Get involved. Talk to customers. That's the other thing I would say. Go talk to your customers. They will tell you, especially if you're a new CEO, pick up the phone, call the Gartner analyst. Go to, talk, to, to travel to your customers. Ask them open-ended questions on what you can do better right? Not everything they say you have to do, but you have to really give them the permission to give you feedback, right? And then I'll go back to the sense of urgency. What did you accomplish in your first 100 days? Measure every day, morning, afternoon, evening. And by doing that, you're going to create so much credibility with your board that they will give you the permission to go do big things. Always focus on execution.
0: I love it. Mahesh, thank you so much for sharing your time on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversations and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one, but thanks for sharing a little bit of time today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.